Marketers of the world, why do we work hard to solve small problems? It's time to bring home bigger paychecks. It's time to create the lifestyle we deserve and to make a greater impact. This is the Fractional CMO Show, and I'm Casey Stanton. Join me as we explore this growing industry and learn to solve bigger problems. The Fractional CMO Show is sponsored by CMOX, the number one company to teach you how to attract, convert, and serve clients as an in-demand fractional CMO. Today's guest is CMO of South Padre Press, CMO of Viva Capital Management, fractional CMO and general partner of Timberland Consulting Group, Canadian expat in Belize, my friend Russ Reynolds. Hey, Russ, excited to have you on. Awesome, man. Thanks, Casey. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on today because um, I really loved your story and I, I'm going to let you get into it. But the arc here for anyone listening is, is Russ built his notoriety and, and income and business based on copywriting, persuasive copywriting, trained by one of the best copywriters, one of the best living copywriters. Um, Russ has taken down uh, a lot of big projects and um, I'll let him get into that. But he has moved from the role of copywriter, which is writing persuasive words um, for high dollar, and he's converted that into kind of the next level, which is he's moved up. And instead of being a copywriter, he's now a CMO, and he's a CMO for multiple companies, making him a fractional chief marketing officer. He's been able to increase his revenue, increase his impact, increase his leverage, and not have to write words for a living. Um, And now... Uh, from what I understand, Russ, you can write kind of when you want to, how you want to uh, for the projects that you want, but you also have people that work for you that do the writing. Um, so I'm excited for us to unpack that. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You got it uh, nailed. I'm happy to share whatever I can. Cool. Well, let's just start off real quick and let's learn one thing from you. Um, uh, as a copywriter, you've gotten to see a lot of funnels that are really successful. And one that I know that you've got a lot of expertise in is paid book funnels. Can you break down from a high level, what's a paid book funnel versus a non-paid book funnel? And um, what are you seeing that's working right now? Yeah, good question. So um, I guess there are a few philosophies behind paid book funnels. And the idea, first off, you, you call it paid. Um, as you should. There's a lot of uh, free books out there and free book, free plus shipping funnels. Those don't seem to be working like they used to, at least in my experience. Uh, What I love about paid book funnels is that you only bring people through the funnel that are actually buyers. So there's a couple of things I love about it. You bring buyers into the funnel. Um, Buyers are much better to deal with, in my opinion, than leads. You're also bringing a very specific type of buyer when you bring a book buyer. Generally, they're better clients, better customers over the long haul because they either like to read or they aspire to read. In either case, they're, they make great uh, customers. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting piece because a lot of people say like, oh, to build my business, I need a bunch of leads. And I feel like it's it's almost kind of like a new term to be saying like, I don't want to be build a lead list. I want to build a customer list. Do you feel like that's been around for a long time? Or do you think it's kind of a newer uh, like a thing? You know, I think it's it's been around for a long time. Um, certainly, I mean boardroom, I guess, and those guys probably built their business uh, selling books back in the day. So I think selling books to bring clients in or customers in the funnel is not necessarily new. I think uh, what's different is uh, doing it in a way that, like I said, uh, we eliminate the free plus shipping because we find a lot of uh, tire kickers come to the funnel that way. So it's paid right up front. And it's kind of undergoing a revitalization, I would say, that, that whole funnel strategy with, with books because they're much easier to market on the front end compliantly. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, compliance is really important. Um, the free plus shipping, the one penny trial offer, I think the supplement folks have kind of um, run that kind of well past its prime. And now we've got issues being able to process any payments on like a one penny now. And then in 14 days, I'll bill you the full price. I mean, those that's the stuff that we used to be able to run 10, 20 years ago in marketing, uh, but now it seems more difficult. So you're saying that this paid book funnel as a front end offer um, lets you kind of like sidestep that and, and build a, a list of customers. But are you building them at break even or do you even have profitability? Uh, for the... the for most of the funnels we're running right now, they're a little bit negative on the front end, uh, slightly. Uh, we hope to recoup that, or we do recoup that typically in under seven days. So the way the funnel is structured is there's um, typically a 5 or $10 book on the front end. And then there's a series of upsells and it gets the cart value to perhaps somewhere around 20 bucks, depends on the funnel. Uh, but it's much easier to acquire a customer for a $5 book than it is to acquire, when I say easier, I mean cheaper, uh, to acquire a, f- a customer for a $5 book than it is to acquire um, sometimes even free leads and certainly um, easier to acquire than somebody who's paying for you know $49 product. So, so we can get customers on, on a funnel like that, say at $20 and, um, uh, sorry, the say at $40 and the average sale on that somewhere around 20. And so typically we're ne- then the back end kicks in and it depends of course how you have the back end structured, but um, we look to go positive within seven days. Okay. So what you're saying is that kind of every day you have a funnel that's live that you're spending 40 bucks to acquire a customer that pays you 20. You're upside sure. down 20 bucks. And then over the next seven days, you've got an upsell sequence that a certain percentage take. That's a number much greater than $20. What is it like a $97, $47 offer? Uh, a $49 offer and then a little, uh, just a, a $2 bump on a digital copy of the book. Oh, awesome. Uh, okay. So what is the, let, let's like break this down to brass tacks. When someone comes in for the book, um, what are you doing? You're just bringing them in through cold traffic. Is it through like Facebook ads? Is it through other kind of uh, display medium? Yeah, it really depends on, on the book. Um, we have a couple that are really edgy that I've worked on uh, politically. So they can't run typically on Facebook traffic or anything like that. So we usually kickstart those with email traffic because um, it's just from a compliance perspective, it's easier. Uh, anything that's sort of a little more vanilla than Facebook is a great way to, to test first. Yeah, that makes sense. So with that, you are driving traffic to an offer. And is this more like a kind of a typical CPA offer where everything's on one page, it's long copy, you've got above the fold, uh, first name, last name, address, credit card field, it's got an SSL on it. Is it that kind of approach or is it more of a multi-step? Do you have an opt-in first? Um, it's on a separate page, but not, so it's not all on one page, but it is a long form sales page. Um, and then they typically click a button to go to the cart page. So there's two pages. Page one is the copy. Page two is the checkout. Yeah. And the copy pages, I mean, all the heavy lifting is really, typically we put a VSL on there and long form copy as well. Uh, the VSL is more about credibility and we don't, you know, a lot of times people don't even, they'll click play and then scroll down the page. So what really does is selling, as you can imagine with books is bullets. So the, the bullets further on the copy that do most of the, the heavy lifting. And so uh, just for, for example, I, I love bullets or like, uh, as I was taught them, fascinations, right. right? So just like give me an example of a fascination that you could use for a book so that people listening can understand. 
Well, you know, the most famous one I can think of is what never to eat in an airplane, which is probably one that, you know, and, right. and probably thought I might mention, um, what never to eat on an airplane. Uh, right. and the idea here is like, if you read that line, what never to eat on an airplane, it's just, it's not something that is easy to remember. It's something that's impossible to forget. Right. It's just like a line that gets stuck in your brain and you're like, shoot, what am I missing? What, what shouldn't I eat on an airplane? And sometimes people buy, right? Like the book just because of one fascination or one bullet, right? Absolutely. What's interesting too is in a headline, bullets are really headlines, but you don't have to pay them off in the copy when it comes to a book, which is great. So if it's a headline in a typical sales letter, then you have to kind of reveal, you know, what you teased in the headline uh, a little later on in the copy. But with bullets, uh, fascinations, like you said, you don't have to do that. So you can really be playful and tease the littlest thing inside a book. Um, and as you said, people will buy sometimes just for one of those. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I feel like to me, there's like something so like, uh, just like alluring about reading really well-written fascinations. Um, they each can paint such a dramatic future for the person. And some of them are just like, I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. That doesn't matter. And then other ones are just like, just kind of halting. They just like make you kind of consider what's possible. One I love from Gary Bensavanga is you and I insist on fresh fish and fresh milk. Why not fresh olive oil? And it's like, it's such an interesting kind of subhead fascination that he uses um, because I've never considered that olive oil and fish are kind of related in shelf life. Right. Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't aware of that one. That's a good example. Yeah. yeah he's got a fresh pressed olive oil. Um, with TJ Robinson or TJ Robbins or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've read the letter. I just didn't, that didn't stick out to me, but yeah. Yeah. Now that you pointed out, it's good. Yeah. Awesome. So um, talk to me about like, uh, uh, like the most important elements on that landing page. So someone just clicked over from a cold traffic ad. Now they're on this website. Obviously the website has to load reasonably quickly. You know what, do you do a headline and then a VSL or is it a VSL with a headline in it? Does it auto play? Do you do a countdown three, two, one, turn up your speakers kind of thing? What, what, what seems to work above the fold? I mean, for us, we don't tend to want to be real scammy. Um, and I see some of that stuff you just mentioned. It seems a little scammy to me. It was like auto plays. Like a lot of the networks don't like that. People don't like it, right? Sitting no at one likes something auto play. Up, right? So we, we don't do that. We do a, a headline about the video. We have the controls visible in the video so people can actually scroll through it if they want. Because again, oh, you, can, you let people up. scrub videos, even a VSL, you let them scrub through it. Yep, because the way we do the, inter, the, uh, the VSLs is actually interview style. So it's, it's a, a publisher interviewing a guru, for instance. Oh, and yeah. so, you know, we don't really want to force them because we know they're going to scroll down the page anyway and start reading the bullets. Um, another key element is that in the ads that we run and even in the headline, we talk about it being a book so that people don't come to the page unless they know something's for sale. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, again, we're trying to weed out tire kickers. Well, that's really important. So let's talk about that ad copy. Let's just step back a second. Um, ad copy, uh, you know, some people say you shouldn't show price on ads. You shouldn't show kind of what the offer is. You shouldn't set kind of like tease to a future, uh, to a benefit. Um, you're saying that if you show that you're selling a book, tire kickers won't click through because they're not interested in purchasing a, purchasing a book, thereby reducing the disqualified traffic and increasing like your rate of qualified leads or qualified visitors. Is that right? Right. And depending on the medium, if people don't click through, you don't, you know, you don't pay. So right. uh, we're only paying for more qualified traffic. I'd also say that people say to kind of hide the price, but if you're going to buy 
you know, something with, with name recognition like uh, Tide and it's on sale $5 off, they lead with that because it's something people want. So this isn't quite there, but we're leading with the idea that it, it's a $5 book. And mm. so if they can get a book for $5, then, you know, lowers it. it. In this case, it's a benefit, not a, not a problem. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You said, uh, but, but what's the cost of the book that you're selling? Is it a $40 book? No, no, sorry. If, uh, it's a five or $10 book. Oh, but you mentioned it was a $20 purchase. Yeah, because the, um, there's a bump on it. It's $1.95 for the digital copy of the book for people who want it right away. And there's a $49 upsell. And so typically we're finding 30, 30% of the people take the bump and 30% of all buyers also take the upsell. So if I do the math, that's a little over, a little over $20. Yeah. Okay. Got it. That's where that comes from. So on the ad copy, uh, what are you finding is most effective? Is it um, video ad or image ad? Uh, image ad. Um, I want to expand that out to do more YouTube stuff because I've done a lot of that successfully in the past and I haven't done that with book funnels a lot yet. Mm. So I'm anxious to test that. Sure. But th like that always kind of comes secondary, right? Like a video is difficult to create. It, it takes you more effort to create it, put your different hooks in there. Very easy to do that. And just like the copy over uh, an image ad or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you've got your ads running. Um, then you're targeting folks. Uh, are you tar targeting folks with any kind of unique audience type? Are you doing like a typical Facebook kind of like choose your audience through the audience builder? Are you doing custom audiences through an acquired list? Lookalikes? So it depends on the book. And one of the other things that I like about uh, these book funnels is you can cast a wider net. So I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more, but I work mainly in, in the financial space. So when you think of the financial space, companies like Robinhood have brought a lot of uh, investors who were previously on the sidelines, just investing in a typical 60-40 portfolio and brought them into more active trading. But there's still you know millions of investors out there who don't actively trade, don't take any kind of active involvement in their uh, portfolio at all. So casting a, a wide net with a book like that can, uh, or with some of the books that we've done can attract a wider audience and get them to be more active investors. The benefit of, it's a long, long way of saying it, but the benefit is that uh, when you cast that wider net and bring buyers in like that, that, that um, we do at a profit when you include the back end, right? Um, what it does is it just um, allows you to make a much bigger business and a much more, I guess, vanilla advertising in the front end. Mm. I don't mean vanilla as in the copy sucks. I mean, vanilla as in, you don't have to be hardcore about trading or Forex or, or that kind of thing. Got it. Um, talk to me about the, um, like the, the rest of the landing page that someone visits. So at the top, you've got your VSL. How long is that approximately? Uh, we test a couple of different versions. So one is like three and a half minutes where it's the author talking about the benefits of the book. And the other one's an interview style, which is uh, 20 to 40 minutes. Got it. So, yeah. so you've got that video uh, below it. You've got other stuff for people to read because, you know, people are kind of antsy. They want to scroll down. They kind of want to get to the point. They want to like learn more about it. So the video keeps playing as they scroll down. You know, what's kind of the formula of that page? VSL at the top and then what, just bullets until the checkout button? Is there a guarantee? Do you do testimonials? Definitely a guarantee, definitely a testimonials um, sprinkled throughout. It's very much like the buttons say right on it, you know, 
click here to get your $5 book now, that kind of copy, because it's, we want to be very upfront about the $5 because it's a benefit. Um, and so the psychology of the people on that page is that they're scrolling. There's, you know, the, in the beginning, this typical copy where it's a little bit emotional in the start um, gets people to kind of identify the problem, let's say in the financial space about their looming retirement, that's probably underfunded. Right. So it talks about that. And then um, quickly, pretty quickly gets into bullets and people just tend to scroll and read those before making a decision because they, they know it's for sale. It's more like they're hovering going, is this something I really want rather sure. than taking them totally blind? It's not a price objection. It's like, do I actually need this? Right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, how do you know that they're reading the bullets? Are you looking at a heat map? Do you have like um, software on that, like a hot jar or, or something like that? Uh, yes and no. You know, I wish I could say that that it was that sophisticated. So there's some of that, but it's it's probably mostly assumption. And what I love is that even with assumption, you have a um, like self-liquidating offer. Right? right. Like you don't even have to be all that focused and dialed in. I think as like time progresses, you're going to have to, I think, especially in some of the media places that we're on, like Facebook, um, we're seeing such a swell in CPMs that it's going to be more difficult to turn a profit so you'll need to look at it but like you're saying like right now it's kind of blue ocean that the opportunity exists that uh you don't have to be all that numbers focused to still have a winning offer well it's an interesting thing because for years people have talked about um either having to be self-liquidating off the hop with like a 200 dollars upsell right um you know if it costs 80 bucks to acquire a customer or whatever or go like you know some companies will go six months negative before they recoup the the money I think that there's like a sweet spot in there where if you put the upsell as a, a $200 upsell, you lock a lot of people out of that purchase. And by putting in something like a $49 purchase, it lowers that barrier of entry for people to get further in the funnel. And if um, you can afford to go negative for a week rather than six months, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I remember hearing um, years ago at Titans of Direct Response, uh, when that big event happened that Brian Kurtz had, you mentioned Boardroom earlier in the conversation here. For anyone listening, Boardroom was what, like the biggest publisher of what, like paid uh, newsletters? Is that, was that, that was kind of their business model? Yeah, I guess I don't really, it's kind of before my time, I don't claim to know the company very well, but I sure. know that it was built on, you know, selling books kind of on the front end. Right. And I don't really understand how, how their back end worked. Yeah. Yeah. And I just remember hearing um, kind of the, the importance of like uh, um, having an offer, obviously that, that liquidates on the front end, having some kind of lower price thing to get people in it and build that customer list. I think you're absolutely right. That that's so valuable. I mean, so many people here talk about the size of their list, right? Like you, you meet someone at a marketing event or you meet like a client and they're like, yeah, we've got 10,000 people on our list. It's like, okay, how'd you get them? Did you like hire someone offshore to scrape a database? Cause like, that's not that valuable of a list. And if you gave away like a freebie thing, that's not that valuable of a list. But if you have a list of a thousand or 2000 or 5,000 book buyers at $5 with a couple upsells and you were able to make a small profit on that and then have your big back ends, man, that's, I mean, that's a proper business. That's a, it's a very different thing. What's uh, just to your point there, what's interesting too, is the people brag about how big their list is. And then the next minute they're talking about list hygiene and, Calling all the people that don't open their emails and it's, right, it's almost right. counterintuitive. I get an eight percent open rate on a fifty thousand dollars, fifty thousand person list, right? Like, right, not helpful. Exactly. Yeah. 
Okay, so then um, you drive people to the click through and then they're going to the checkout page. Um, is there any checkout page software that you like? Are you like a Sam cart guy? Are you a thrive cart? Do you use just like, what that old like a uh, one shopping cart or something like that? I mean, right now, everything's built on thrive cart uh, with my clients. I'm kind of agnostic about about what it is really, as long as it loads fast and we can make it look like we want it to look. Yeah. Loading fast is like so important right now. Yeah. Uh, like people aren't focusing on that and they absolutely need to. So that's a, that's a, that's a great piece. Um, okay. So I think this book funnel is really interesting. Uh, you're doing your upsells. Just um, someone might be saying, oh, this isn't approachable for me because I'm not going to write a uh, 250 page book. What size book is needed? What's a book to you? What book qualifies into your book funnel? Could it be a 20, 30 page book? Does it have to be 50, 100, 200 pages? I mean, I've certainly gone as low as 80 pages. Um, it's always a balance between we want to write something that is a real book. I'm not saying you have to do this. I just prefer to operate this way. So uh, when I work on these projects, we actually outsource them with, with like a New York Times bestselling ghostwriter. Oh, wow. Um, and they're real books. I, you don't have to do that to make this work. Um, but especially in spaces like financial, it adds a lot of credibility to have a, a real book. Um, it's not really that hard to do with a great ghostwriting team that, that can handle all the work. Um, with What's the, the timeline? Writing. Do you have like general ideas of like timeline and starting costs for that? For writing an 80 plus page book, if you have a ghostwriter, which I assume is someone that like interviews you, you get like audio dumps and then they take it and then write it and, and turn it into something sellable. Yeah. So when you say 80 pages, um, I'm looking at it like 250 words a page. So that's probably 20,000 words. So most of the ones I've worked on are like 40,000. So they're probably like 160 page book, something like that. Depends how it's formatted, but, uh, and they're to get a, you know, kind of a high end ghostwriting team, not high end. So ghostwriters can charge, you know, two, 300 grand a book, but for a solid, decent ghostwriter, you're looking around 20,000. And that's turnkey, you know, from nothing to done. It, it de depends on how you structure things. Those things can go forever. So, um, and when I'm involved in the project, I help conceptualize the, the idea of the book um, and what it needs to do and how it's going to roll out. And so we've got them done in under 90 days. Wow. So 20K, 90 days. Yeah. That's like kind of the minimum. Yeah. And that's a well-written book, well-formatted you know, a real book. Killer. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, and then you're selling the book. You've got the checkout page. I assume the checkout page has some basic, um, like great marketing pieces. Like you've got your guarantee on it, which is what a satisfaction kind of money back $5 money back guarantee. If you don't love the book kind of thing, right. That's the first. Yeah. Well, this wasn't my idea with somebody else's, but we did, um, a lifetime guarantee on the book. Oh, so if you come back in four years and you don't like it, then you get your money back. But <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> It's so, kind of like, I mean, I mean, the math all shows that the longer the guarantee, the typically the higher the uh, um, purchase rate. And even if you have a swell of returns, it still is offset by the increase of sales as a result of the guarantee, right? Right. And this is the, you know, the other benefit to writing a real book. No one, no one wants their money back on that $5. Yeah, book. right. And yeah. I, I'm not going to spend the time to get my $5 back. That just seems just not worth my time. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then you do your bump for the digital. That's awesome. Is the digital coming as like a PDF? It, does it come through Amazon? A PDF. Cool. Yeah. Um, is the book a create space, Amazon create space, kind of like print on demand, or do you just like, do you produce a bunch? Do you have them in your basement and you ship them out from Belize? 
<laughs> not from Belize. That might take a while. <laughs> There's um, in the beginning when they when they first start, it's just easier to use Amazon and have them print on demand. Yeah. And then as soon as uh, as soon as you start doing it in, in some volume, then uh, send them to fulfillment house and have them shipped out from there. Yeah. That makes sense. Awesome. Um, okay, cool. So I want to um, talk about what you think is one of the biggest problems plaguing the industry right now. And like the industry kind of at large, and, and I know you kind of come with like this um, uh, copy experience. Uh, what's something that you think right now is like just plaguing the industry, something that you're pretty sick of? You know, I think it's the idea that it, it people have been told through courses or whatever, right, to just throw some crap against the wall and see what sells. And I'm all for people like try, you know, ready, fire, aim. I'm, I'm all for that. But I think totally. there's a, a glut of, of real, you know, real knowledge, like real expertise out there that people are sharing something with something unique to say. So like a book is a real thing. It's only five bucks and there's a whole bunch of stuff on the back end of that. But I would say, so there's two things. So creating real products that actually help people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not happening as often as, you know, could, I think. And the other thing is just, and it probably goes along with that, is just really hypey, crappy copy. Right. <laughs> so like so much, so much of what people are selling is kind of smoke and mirrors. And not everybody, mm. right? There's lots of good people too. But there's lots of smoke and mirrors being sold out there. And so the people that, you know, that are writing copy for those kinds of things don't have a whole lot to hang their hat on. Sure. So you mean like they can't really talk about a true unique mechanism in a product because it lacks one. So they just have to come up with um, kind of like bigger claims and just kind of bullshit their way to a sale. Is that the idea? Yeah. I mean, you talked about the health supplement space earlier. I mean, in the supplement space, it's pretty common for a lot of companies to just want a a funnel that makes money and they tell the copywriter to to pick the product. (laughs) So that's how little they care about the product is the copywriters coming up with the formula. No way. I've never heard that. You're saying copywriters have choice of product? Because the copywriter I, should know where they're like trying to find a unique angle from the product. Right. And I'm not that's, saying that's, that's the majority of the time, but I know that it's happened. Often. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, like what, what I always look for with a client is like, I want a client with something awesome, something defensible. Right. Um, if it's going to be vitamin D, it's got to have like a special blend of curcumin and like a cremini mushrooms or something. Right. It's like, it has to be able to do something different so I can sell that because selling a commodity is it's kind of impossible to, to be profitable on a commodity front end, right? Right. So it's exactly what I'm saying. So people that, you know, don't put the thought into what kind of unique products that they want to sell that they can stand behind and believe in, it just flows through the system. Then it has crappy copy to sell it and uh, it just taints the whole industry. Not that I'm in the supplement industry anymore, but. Sure. Yeah, I think that's yeah. completely true though. Awesome. Um, okay. So what excites you right now about the future? Like, is there an emerging marketing trend that you're excited about? I mean, it seems like these book funnels are are like uh, they're not new, but they are kind of new, right? Like what's old is new again. It feels like. Is there anything else that you're pretty excited about? I don't know that it's a marketing thing specifically, but I'm super excited, and it makes me feel really old. I'm getting into like DeFi and crypto and all this kind of stuff. And you mentioned before I'm living down in Belize, and part of the reason is that is I just believe in in freedom. Um, I guess that's one word to sum it all up. And I think that crypto and DeFi are, are bringing that to a lot of parts of the world that it's not there. And it's going to level the playing field for people in, there's a huge percentage of people in the world that are unbanked. You know, they can't even get a right. bank account, let alone try to sell something online. Um, 
it's going to change that for all those people. So I'm excited about working in those industries more. And I'm excited about what that's going to bring to the rest of the world as far as them being able to market their stuff. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Yeah, I think um, what's happening in DeFi right now is just, it's the start of something enormous. I mean, just recently, what, China banned crypto, which just means that it's going to be even bigger. Um, what, yesterday, uh, Bitcoin hit $55,000. What, again? I mean, it's it's just like kind of at its peak right now. I mean, it's only going to grow. I think you're spot on that. It's just such a, such a significant time to consider what's going to happen there. Um, okay, so I want to learn a bit about you, though. So um, I got to know you. Uh, you have been trained under um, a really great copywriter, a friend of mine. Um, you and I connected kind of outside of him, so I didn't even know that until you joined the CMOX Accelerator. And you came in as a copywriter, um, as a like a very well-trained, process-driven, successful copywriter. You had a copywriting business. Why did you want to kind of move out of copy as a full-time into, you know, solving bigger problems and, and becoming a fractional CMO. And there's a lot of reasons. So writing copy is a lot of work. <laughs> writing good copy is a lot of work. I mean, it can be well-paying for sure. Um, I would say that, you, you know, you talk a lot in, in your marketing stuff about um, effective hourly rate. Yeah. And when you look at copywriting as an effective hourly rate, it's, it, it depends what kind of copy you write. So if you're writing long form copy and you want to make royalties commissions on, on the copy, um, you know, guys like, you know, the guy who mentored me just mentioned Paris, you know, I'm sure he made a fortune still does writing copy like that. Right. Um, but most people by and large actually have a really low effective hourly rate, unless you're like really in the top and actually getting consistent royalties. It's not that great of a paying job if you're doing a good, Tell me what you think the like the average copywriter is really doing. Are they doing 50 bucks an hour? 75? I mean, most copywriters don't make any money. It's just at all. It's just entertainment, right? They never sell their, themselves at all. But, um, I, you know, even at the, the high end, there's probably, I have no idea what it would be as a percentage, but it's a small percentage that would make six figures, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and, and those are good, solid copywriters that are making six figures. And then there's like a handful that are making, you know, seven figures plus. Right. It's not all and about they're money. Making that, but... They're making that money on leverage, though. They're making that money because they write for a right. package. Um, this is like the boardroom idea that uh, Brian Kurtz and that crew kind of came up with, which was we're going to, or Marty Edelson came up with it, which was we're going to pay the copywriter to write, but then we're also going to pay them a royalty based on the success of the mailer. And I think that's kind of the pipe dream for copywriters. But also, like as a business owner, I'm not necessarily going to hire a copywriter and give them that percentage. Um, it feels kind of unbelievable at, at some level, right? Like, I mean, you can incentivize a great copywriter to come in and do it, but also, you know, can you really afford to lose 10% of your uh, profit on a sale um, in perpetuity because you're using their copy that you kind of already paid for? So I feel like that model is like, um, it's sold to copywriters as this huge potential, but did you ever find it to be something that was easy to find, like client-wise? Were you able to find clients that gave you royalties? Yeah, because you, you target those those clients. Hmm. Um, and so it, it depends on the, in the industry as well. So I worked a lot in the supplement industry that we talked about. And I have a client that I wrote three, and it was a small client at the time. They grew to be bigger, partially based on my copy. 
I wrote three controls for them, you know, things that, that launched their, their supplements and continued to be, they have other people write copy to go against it and it hasn't beat it. And it's probably, I think it's about four years and getting paid every month, like clockwork on those, but that oh, was great. So that, that continues to pay you. Yes. So far up to today. Yes. Um, but it's, it's very, I think that kind of story is few and far between. And I mm-hmm. think that more often than not, it's a pipe dream, as you said. Um, and me personally, you asked about me personally, I came to the realization, I think that um, I'm a good copywriter, probably better than, I don't know, 90% of them out there, 80%, I don't know. But I don't think that I have what it takes to be like a world-class, fantastic copywriter. Oh, um because not many people you know there's there's only a handful of people in the world that do and so that was part of it and it's just it's also i don't mind working hard but it's just you know your your head's in that space all the time it's a really hard thing to do year after year yeah yeah i'm sure it it's it's such a like a muscle out kind of role like you just have to like just push through it you got to just keep like churning out words every single day uh, you've got your packages that are due on a certain time. Um, I mean, the joke is that copywriters, right, work 50% of the time to make the sale and the other 50% like the day before it's due. Yeah. I mean, and part of that is just, at least for me, it was, it's angst about, am I writing the right thing? Mm. So I, I can write well, but it's what, it's the, what words do you write that are going to be effective, obviously. And that's what takes that amount of time. Yeah. Okay. So you were in this copywriter role, you've been there for years and you decided, what you wanted to kind of elevate yourself to a different role that didn't require you, you to write, but also you've got this income coming in from writing. So um, talk about your path of like bringing support on board and then how you elevated. And, and can you tell a story maybe too about how you transformed one of your big copy clients into a copy client and a fractional CMO client in one? Sure. Um, that's a lot to unpack. So um, let me back up for a second. I think that the the main sort of takeaway for me was I started to realize that there was a a lot of copy projects I was working on for what I call unsophisticated clients. And I'm not talking about them personally. I'm talking about their businesses. Mm -hmm. So I kind of classified that, you know, you look at some of the big mailers, those are what I call sophisticated clients when it comes to copywriting. So, you know, startups are people that are well-funded, but they don't necessarily know anything about a direct marketing business. I worked with a lot of people like that. And they ended up running their marketing strategy um, anyway, right? Because over the years that just you're in this business, it just kind of, uh, you get to know, you know, what funnels work, how things should be set up. So I found myself doing a lot more than the copy, a lot of times uh, doing the marketing To do strategy. the copy. You were paid on the right. copy, but you were right. forced to be the marketing strategist without pay, because if you didn't provide the right marketing strategy, your copy would have flopped. Right. So uh-huh. like a very real example, not so long ago, a client um, that I wrote copy for, they were saying that the funnel doesn't work. And, you know, you look through the funnel, it's a mess. It's got all kinds of things it shouldn't have in there. They're targeting the wrong people in the ads. Right. So if you want it to work, especially if you're getting royalties, you have to like dig in and help them. And I just said, you know, why am I, why am I off doing all this stuff for free, essentially, when right. I enjoy that stuff? Why don't I just, you know, turn it on its head and, and make that my main thing. Yeah. Like create a line item for it and just charge for it directly. Yeah. Right. I think so many people listening to this, if, if you're a marketer listening to this and you're doing strategy so that you can do your tactic, um, consider the profitability that exists. If you 
we're think about how much you could make, but also think about the impact you could make. Like you didn't, you wrote the copy to sell a product. Great. Right. That, that, that's what you were hired for. Um, but it didn't have the impact in the business. And then the impact that you're able to create by doing the marketing strategy. And when you're paid for it, you're invested. So you do a better job. You're not doing the minimum viable marketing strategy to get the copy to work. You're thinking kind of through and through for the whole business, for all of the other products. You're thinking through upsells and downsells of products that you didn't write copy for, that you don't get a royalty on, but you want them to be successful so that you can kind of continue the, the engagement. Um, it seems to me that the company needs you to elevate uh, and if you just stayed in that copywriter role, you're kind of doing them a disservice, but it's kind of tough to juggle the disservice that you're doing their business versus you needing to be compensated fairly for your time, right? Yeah, that's a great point. It, I think it's also by nature, the copywriter, especially as a freelancer, and because I'm Canadian, there weren't a lot of opportunities to go work in-house with people. There's that whole hmm. thing where, because most of the good clients were American, right? Were they like New York and, and L.A.? Florida, actually, oh, in, Florida. In the okay. industries that I'm in, they seem to all be in West Palm Beach. But. So working as, especially as a freelance con- copywriter, if you're not working in-house, there's, by nature, a somewhat adversary, adversarial nature yeah. uh, to the relationship. You're not on their team. Of course, you're all sort of rowing in the same direction, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's not the same as, as a CMO capacity at all, where you're like on their team, we're working together. Um, it, it's much more advantageous in that I can help them see their vision through, you know, you mentioned Viva Capital before, they're a great company looking to bring crypto uh, to the masses. And so Mm -hmm. I love their mission and I can dig down in there not just write copy one and done and then maybe write something else in three months. Yeah, right. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so you're doing that work. How did you get there though? You had these copy clients. Talk to me about that kind of transformation of a copy client to a fractional CMO client without losing the copy client. Uh, I'm trying to remember when it happened exactly. Um, So for one of the clients, we had a copy project and it went successfully and they're like wanting to do another copy project. And I said, you know, why don't we just, there's another way we could spin this because I knew he was, had bad experiences hiring copywriters before me. Mm. So I said, why don't you just let me manage it? Take it off your plate. You still don't have to worry about it, but then I'll do all these other things for you at the same time. Oh, that's Um, great. And because we had worked well together, we had a similar philosophy. It, it just, it happened that way. Um, and I had saw a lot of your videos too at the same time. And, mm. um, you know, the free content you put out and it helped guide me into what that role would look like because I'm not really a, a hugely process driven guy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a weakness of mine. And you had all that kind of in the back end. And just even from your free stuff, I, I said, was able to, um, run with that and sell the idea of having these processes behind me. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And you were able then to bring a copywriter in to kind of work under you. You were able to keep that con- uh, copywriting contract and then you elevated. You're now the fractional CMO over there. You've got, I mean, the authority's kind of been deputized on you. You're like given now more authority to lay out the marketing strategy and folks listen to you. And then you have the copy written. And what you then copy chief it too, right? You're you're making sure that all copy that goes through is good copy, right? Yeah, I mean, it depends which client. Um, you know, one client, I, I don't do a lot of that anymore because there's a copywriter that's been kind of elevated and he's doing the copy oh, great. chief. Um, but yeah, essentially that's, it's a strength to be able to bring copy knowledge into the business. And I have to be careful not to get stuck, mired down in being a full-time copy chief because that's not what a CMO is. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's a great term that comes from uh, EOS and they talk about elevate, uh, excuse me, delegate to elevate. And mm. right, you got to delegate that whole, the, the whole copy thing off to someone else potentially. Um, and then you're just looking on the high level, like if it aligns with the product or the service or the funnel or the whatever. Um, and then if it doesn't, you just ask the person to fix it. You don't have to go in there, tweak it yourself. You're not rolling up your sleeves. That's one thing that I think a lot of people who are listening to this are, have potentially found themselves in, which is they continue to fall back down. They try to elevate themselves to a place of authority, to a place of leadership, to a strategist role. And then they find that they kind of fall back down. And next thing they, they, they know, they're like in the back end of WordPress or they're rewriting the copy or they're like, oh, I'm going to just build my own ad sets for, for this client. Um, how do you maintain that elevation? Do you have any anything that you're doing differently? Is it that you have a team around you that supports you? Is it that you're just kind of uh, dead set on solving a bigger problem and staying more elevated? So I struggle with it sometimes. Um you know, like I think everyone does, but I do have a, a, a vast network, I guess it's specifically in writing or especially with writers. So I can certainly get writers involved when need be um, tech people. So I have this team, it, but most of all, I know where to, to reach out to. I mean, you're, uh, I've reached out to some of the, the people that you recommend even. So having that network and being able to find the people that you need to plug in is, uh, is key. And I think when you're in a business too, and the one thing that they're missing is like a marketing tech person, if mm -hmm. they don't have that, and, and you spelled this out, I quickly figured out that you're right, is that's like the first hire they need to have after yeah. you is to get a marketing tech person in there. Somebody like a jack of all trades type person. Totally. Yeah. Anyone who's listening to this, the only way that you can elevate yourself to an authoritative role in the company is that you have to be able to delegate to somebody. You have to have a, what I think should be a full-time in-house marketing technician we use the term technician because they're kind of a jack of all trades. They're doing everything. They're interfacing with one side of the company. They're pulling things together in Salesforce or Pardot or Marketo or MailChimp or you know uh, Active Campaign or whatever. They're doing that necessary labor so that you don't have to. And if you're ever going to work with a client and they don't have the budget to pay for that person or that person in-house, you're going to have a bad time. I've been there before. Sounds like you've been there before. Uh, and it doesn't matter how how successful you've been with other clients. If you're working for someone, if you're getting a, a great paycheck, they're going to expect a level of output from you. And if you don't have a team to delegate to, like you're the one-stop shop, you're the, um, the, the Mr. Do-it-all, right? That's not a, that's not a fun place to be. Right. And so one strategy that I have used successfully there is we talk about, you talk a lot about effective hourly rate. And I took that to heart. I, I tell my clients that I said, you know, I could do this, tweak this thing, but you know what you're paying me to tweak it. It's probably not the best use of my time to be tweaking it for that price. Somebody else should be doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Um, awesome. So uh, I, I'm curious, if someone who is like kind of interested in joining the CMOX Accelerator, is there something that like you think um, makes it unique? Some Something that you would tell them, it'd be a great fit for you if you were X kind of person. Like if they were a copywriter, what would you say to them? Like where would they, where would they need to be in their career, you think, to kind of be qualified to move up to the role of fractional CMO? I think that you have to have probably through experience, not necessarily like in the same industries, but through experience have learned a little bit about leading people and learned a little bit about um, taking ownership over projects. Mm -hmm. I think if you're, you're the type of person who just would walk in and kind of, I, I come from a long sales background and we call people like that order takers and there's no, no disrespect right. to those people, but 
if you're just going to come and kind of take orders and wait to be told what to do, then it's probably not a good fit. But if you're a copywriter or somebody else who understands marketing at a deeper level and likes to take ownership, I think it's probably would be a great fit. Yeah. Awesome. I, I love that. I, I love to surround myself with people who say kind of like, you know, at some level you want them to say like, Hey boss, what should I do today? Right. Like they want to be kind of told, but then also you want to give them a level of um, uh, like leadership that says, here's the outcome I want from you. I don't care how you get there. I'm going to give you all the resources you need, the training, the support, the whatever you've got this budget to make it happen, but I want you to figure it out. So you want, you want these order takers, but you, you want to build them into someone who is um, like uh, self-starting. They're uh, interested in actually delivering the right outcome. And they're going to feel kind of comfortable failing a little bit here and there in order to find that ultimate outcome so that you don't have to create every single step and, and, and micromanage them. So I think that's spot on. Um, okay. So yeah, sorry, just to add the flip side of that is you, you don't want to be the CMO that asking the CEO, what do you want me to do next? Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's not the way this works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I think it's so important to approach a CEO or the executive team every quarter and say, here's the stuff I want to do. Hmm. Tell me what you don't want me to do and tell me what I'm missing. And over time, you're the only person who really figures it out, right? Everyone else is like, I don't know what to do. Like we've all, we've done all of my tricks, all the things that I thought we should do as the CEO. So then the CMO has to innovate and kind of lead it forward. And I think it's important for, you know, any marketer to consider like when you start working with a company, the first 30, 60, 90 days is often kind of hairy, right? It's kind of a mess. You're kind of like, um, just kind of like straightening things out, just kind of like finding the right team players, getting rid of the wrong team players, that kind of stuff. But as time progresses, it's really about staying elevated and building that team below you to really execute the work. Um, so I think you're spot on there. Um, okay, so if someone wanted to uh, reach out to you and, and even hire you as a fractional CMO, what industry would they need to be in? Uh, well, I work exclusively in the financial space. So uh, fintech companies, financial publishing companies, DeFi, crypto, um, moving more. That, that area is so new, so um, I'm not specialized 100% in that, but definitely anything in the financial space. Um, and, you know, they say about a carpenter's house. So right now the website is uh, my LinkedIn profile. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, what's the URL for that? Uh, actually, they could go to uh, russellwreynolds.com with two S's, two L's, and that'll redirect probably to LinkedIn, or maybe I'll have a website by the time they visit. Awesome. I heard one thing that uh, about copy, which is never hire a copywriter who doesn't have the lived experience of the thing. And you're telling me that you're like a crypto junkie. Um, I mean, you moved to Belize, right? Like this is like very much kind of part of your identity is this freedom word that you mentioned. Uh, I have more trust in someone just natively who is kind of all in as a person on a thing. So you're not writing for financial, uh, for the financial markets just because, you know, you're kind of tangentially interested. It really seems like this is part of kind of your identity. Is that right? Yeah, particularly with uh, crypto and DeFi and blockchain, it's it just become, as you said, it's kind of a passion of mine. Um, so that's true. And as I get older, I mean, everybody's staring down the barrel of their own retirement and, and their later years. So it's, it's especially of heightened interest to me now. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. I got a curveball for you. Do you have any NFTs, non-fungible tokens? No. Do you think it's worth investing in NFTs? I, I do. Um, 
uh, when the Buffalo Bills ones come out, I'll uh, <laughs> probably buy into that one. I don't know enough about NFTs to speak intelligently on it. I'm more a fan of like ICOs and um, just buying into Ethereum personally. But yeah, right. Like yeah, the business opportunities there, I think, are much different than like collecting of digital art. I think it's like it'll be interesting to see what happens with these digital art collections. But I think you're totally right. I think Ethereum is the most interesting with their smart contracts. Uh, I think what's going to happen as a result of that. Um, super interesting space to be in. All right, well, uh, Russ, really appreciate your time. Um, again, your website is russellwreynolds.com. If anyone's looking for a fractional CMO in the crypto space, in the uh, what, DeFi, blockchain, Ethereum, anything around there, and financial publishing, um, which is phenomenally large, that market, uh, the financial publishing market is just um, really worth considering. If anyone here is thinking like, oh, maybe I want to get into a, a field, I think those are really great places to be because there's nothing wrong with building inroads with really wealthy people. I don't think anyone's ever had a, a bad outcome in their life uh, by having like um, a list of customers that are very wealthy, right? It seems like a, a smart place to be. Yeah, and I would add to that, that um, the old financial space, so DeFi is decentralized finance, right? The old sort of financial system, those people are all waking up to the realization that they need publishing alongside their business. So there's a huge... Uh, influx right now of interest in people in the publishing space to marry into that old financial world, um, if that makes sense. So anybody that, that's looking, that comes from a, a background of direct response, um, that there's lots of opportunity coming down the pipe with that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's the one thing I love about this fractional CMO space is that there's so much work available, right? There's like you saying, hey, someone else should be in the space with me and kind of compete against me directly. You can say that because they can't compete against you because it's just such a blue ocean right now. It's like, there's never been a time like it is right now to be a fractional CMO. Uh, if you are tight into a niche or an industry, you can really dominate it. And multiple people can dominate it um, and do very well for themselves and then have this asymmetric upside. I mean, there's huge uh, potential as a fractional CMO. Are you seeing that too? Yeah, hundred um, percent. And especially given that you only need you know, four or five clients to make a really healthy living. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that a nice piece? Yeah. All right. Well, Russ, really appreciate it, man. Thanks for calling in from Belize and uh, I'll see you on our next uh, accelerator call. Awesome. I enjoyed talking. Thank you for joining us for today's show. For more information and episodes, visit our site at fractionalcmoshow.com. Go ahead and punch that like and subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. It means a lot, at least to my mom. <laughs>